I'm going to continue to defend Donald Trump. God help me. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Today I'm in New York City, joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Joining us from Washington, D.C., is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Finally, also in D.C., we have Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Recently, from both of these podcast studios, we began the following conversation. And where we began it was turning to our good friend Rosa Brooks. Rosa, what was the title of your last column for Foreign Policy? Oh, I don't remember, David, because I don't write the titles. Your editors write the titles. You only remember you only remember what you write. I can remember the sort of immortal content. Um, oh, yes, the title was Donald Trump has a coherent realist foreign policy. So let me ask you a question. Do you disavow the title? Because it was not written by you. It was written by some editor, nameless. Some guy. I never met them. It has nothing to do with the actual column topic, which was very serious uh, indeed. No, no, I I actually don't entirely disavow it. Um, Wow. (laughs) Only partially That's unusual for our writers. Usually they disavow the headlines altogether. Altogether. Yeah. Um, We try (laughs) when when it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. you know, I I, I think um, I, the main point of the column that I wrote, uh, the headline of which was indeed uh, Donald Trump is a coherent realist foreign policy, was that it's there's underneath all the nonsense, underneath all the bragging, all the bullying, all the contradictions, there is a theory of international relations that is coherent. I don't think it's correct. I think it's I think it's mistaken. I think it would be bad for the country. But I think it is, in fact, fairly coherent and a a, a powerful critique that is resonating very powerfully with ordinary Americans. And I think the tendency here in Washington, there in New York, where you are, to dismiss it by focusing on the silly stuff, the contradictions and, oh, Donald Trump, you know, got his facts wrong on that and then he reversed himself. When we focus on that, we're not responding to the deeper critique of the sort of conventional approach to U.S. foreign policy and that actually ends up helping Donald Trump get to the White House. So the argument more than anything else in my column was a plea to say, you know, let's stop let's stop giving Trump free media anyway by focusing on the gaffes, which ends up only increasing his supporters' enthusiasm for him uh, by making the rest of us look like a feat New York and Washington media snobs, uh, just exactly the type of people who should be sent to the guillotine as soon as the uh, Trump regime comes into power, and instead focus on trying to explain, hey, here's why this particular very transactional, uh, very Machiavellian approach to U.S. foreign policy does not make sense. And let's actually talk about that and try to make that case. Whoa. Oh, yes. I'll have you know that several people have said to me things like, Rosa, you almost are making sense. (laughs) Yeah. Almost. Well, Almost. People uh, well, know that. And that is high praise. We columnists take what we can get. Yeah, no, I very seldom get that. But let me ask you a question before we turn this into a more serious discussion that plays directly into the hands of those Trump followers by revealing us to be the effete New York and Washington types that you say that we are, even though Corey lives completely on a different coast. You re- use two terms in your analysis there. One is theory, and the other is 
coherent. And I'd just like to break <laughs> those two down for a second, okay? A theory usually implies some sort of philosophical foundation, some sort of analytical basis um, uh, on which a worldview uh, of this sort is based. Do you actually think there is something thought out coming from this guy who seems to be 100% id, all impulse, and no sort of thoughtful cognitive processes? I think you're underestimating Donald Trump. I think he does have a theory, and his theory is based on his own personal experience as a you know real estate mogul, et cetera. He is applying to U.S. foreign policy a set of principles that he believes are effective in the real estate world. We can question whether he's right about that, obviously. Um, that has to do with keeping your cards close to your chest, being unpredictable, never revealing what your ultimate objectives are in a negotiation, and trying to get as much as you possibly can out of everybody else before you make any concessions. You know, and it, it's a it's a view of the world. It's a view of the world that that does fit together. I think. I I think it's it's misses all kinds of other stuff, but but no, I do think it's a coherent theory. Okay, well, that gets us to coherent. So explain to me how his policies suggesting that the countries of uh, East Asia should arm themselves with nuclear weapons fits coherently with his policies about, I don't know, the Middle East or Mexico. I just want to understand the the assertion of coherence. But you're okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to defend Donald Trump. God help me. Uh, but David, you're, that's not what he said. He didn't say his policy is that the is that Japan and other Asian countries should arm themselves with nuclear weapons. He said when asked, uh, you know, when when asked if some of what he had said might not drive Japan to uh, seek to develop nuclear weapons, he said, "Well, that is possible. They may they might end up wanting to do that. It wouldn't ne necessarily be such a bad thing." And I think that that is different from saying, "I want them to do that. I'm going to seek to have them do that." I, th I think it, it, it's it's of a piece with a wily effort to say I'm not going to be clear. I'm going to I'm going to throw out a whole lot of bluffs and see what happens and see who folds. Oh my uh, God. And then I'm going to take it from there. Oh, so I get it. The coherence is a carefully conceived policy of incoherence. Anyway, correct, you've played correct. very Nixonian, as ver, we said last very time. Nixonian. Be unpredictable. <laughs> well, you've played directly into my hands because that's how we effete <laughs> Easterners have this. Right. Corey, what was the headline of your last column? <laughs> uh, Donald Trump, Barbarian Emperor. That's a better headline than my headline, I have to admit. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Uh -oh, yeah, you? <laughs> you can talk to Yoki later. You can talk to Yoki later about this. The word barbarian is a better word than the word coherent. Yeah, well, that's for sure. But I agree with everything Rosa said. Oh, my God. Thank you, Corey. <laughs> oh, oh, great. So you, former Mex member of the Obama administration, is accepting the, the support for your argument from somebody who is a fervent supporter of we have a John This McCain is what we refer to in Washington as a bipartisan consensus. We now have a bipartisan <laughs> consensus. Corey could have been Sarah Palin's <laughs> national security advisor. And that would have been a very good thing to say. Palin, probably not a very good thing for Corey. <laughs> so I, um, 
I do think he has coherent policies, despite all the ricocheting around. And I agree with Rosa that he is trying to make a virtue of his contradictions by suggesting that he's shrewdly negotiating. But I do think there are consistent themes. And as Tom Wright pointed out um, in a very good article on this, on this subject, um, they've been consistent for almost 30 years. He's opposed to free trade. He thinks every all of our allies are taking advantage of us. And he believes that the United States is weak and failing. And none of those things are true. The point I liked best in Rose's very good uh, column was a suggestion that those of us effete establishment types have failed to make the case that that free trade is a good thing. It's especially a good thing for the poor because it increases their purchasing power. We have failed to explain to Americans how we are going to handle jobs going away as a result of trade, though. We have, we have treated as though it were an obvious fact that America's allies are of value to us, even as in the case of Europe, Europeans went from uh, from the United States having roughly half of NATO's defense spending to now the United States be accounting for more than 70% of NATO defense spending. That uh, That's what gives credence to Trump's arguments, as Rosa said, we're not making the affirmative case well, and we're especially not making it well to my Uncle Eddie, who's a former United Auto Worker in Ohio. Oh, everybody's got an Uncle Eddie that just makes them <laughs> seem so much less in a feat <laughs> coaster. Yucky, what do you make of all of this? You know, I think that within some of the stuff that Trump has said, and you know, Rosa flagged a bit of this in her column, but in particular on NATO, he doesn't sound ludicrous or insane or off the wall when he says NATO isn't working, NATO's obsolete, NATO needs to be rethought, because Bob Gates said the same thing, Leon Panetta said the same thing, Chuck Hagel said the same thing. Ash Carter said the same thing. Now, obviously, they haven't taken it to the Trumpian extreme of, therefore, you know, screw NATO. We don't need to be in it. It doesn't need to be there. But the kind of fundamental critique if he has of it. it breaks up, it breaks up. Right. Eh, it's not here. <laughs> it's huge. Whatever comes, it's huge. But the, the kind of fundamental thing he's saying about it is shared by other people. Uh, I, where, I, where he loses me is when he says of himself that this is all just him trying to keep people guessing, that really... A president needs to kind of come into power with everyone a little bit worried about him, a little terrified, a little scared, never knowing where he's going to go. People are already terrified, already scared, already not knowing where he needs to go. I don't really buy when he says that that's all by design, but I do buy that there are parts of what he says that are not off the wall and that other parts of D.C., if they were being said by somebody other than Donald Trump, would take them a lot more seriously. Well, okay, let's just— Take that, David. Oh, I take it. I'll take it. You keep it coming. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, if I'm in the position here of what, taking all of you Trump defenders on, I feel really good. You know, this is making, like— David How do the three of us again. count as Trump defenders? Well, because you're picking, you know, you're doing that pundity thing, you know, where he's been around Oh, long my God, enough. you sound like Sarah Palin, David. I, I, you, you mainstream media types all <laughs> behave the same way, okay? But sitting here in my porch in Wasilla, I see the world a whole lot differently. Because um, you see Russia, too. I see Russia, and I see the helicopter from which I'm going to shoot the elk. But that's a whole different thing, you know. I, but when you talk about Trump and, and, and Yuhi's defense of it, um, you, 
you, you say, well, look, you know, what he says about NATO is not crazy, except the last thing that he says about NATO. Like, part of what he says is saying, well, that is crazy. Crazy people have some connection to the world. Wait, which is the crazy part? The going a step too far and saying, yeah, let it break up. We don't need it anymore. You know, so you, you've ground it in some, you know, reality. It's, you know, your crazy Aunt Betty up in the attic and she, she knows she's in the attic, but she thinks Jesus is going to come and let her out sometime soon. You know, she's right. She's in the attic, but Jesus is not going to come and let her out sometime soon. And your crazy Uncle Donald may be right about some of the characteristics of NATO, but he takes it to a nutty extreme. But he's also wrong about a bunch of stuff, right? Like he's wrong that NATO uh, hasn't done anything useful for the United States. He's wrong that NATO is not shifted away from a Cold War mentality to take on new missions. First, stabilization of the Baltics, then fighting the war in Afghanistan alongside us. These, what, 12 years now, 13 years now? Not to mention the ongoing support of U.S. arms manufacturers. (laughs) He's also deeply and dangerously wrong about the costs of uncertainty. And to to suggest that allies are no benefit to us and there's no damage to be done if we say, for example, that Japan should get nuclear weapons or South Korea should get nuclear weapons. In a poll about a year ago, 30% of South Koreans shared that view because we unilaterally denuclearized the southern part of the Korean peninsula, but the North Koreans proceeded with their nuclear program. And Asia would be a more dangerous place, not just for Asian countries we like, but also for us if South Korea crossed that threshold. Or well, Japan I think Donald Trump threshold. has gone a long way to demonstrating that 20 or 30 percent of the population can not only be wrong, they can be extremely wrong, right? I uh, see you the argument, David. You know, though these things exist. Um, but, you know, on to Yucky's second point, this assertion that somehow... Um, a uh, 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 candidate, you know, can go out there and come up with something utterly ridiculous, like, well, I'm being incoherent because it's my strategy to be incoherent. And if he's around long enough, pundits will start going, mm-hmm, well, there must be something to this because 20 or 30 percent of the American people who are also completely out of their fucking minds um, <laughs> are willing to support this. Oh, Corey's uncle does not like you anymore. <laughs> so one of the things I liked about Tom Wright's piece from January was that he emphasized that Trump's uh, opposition to trade, concern about alliances, um, are actually positions that mainstream politicians have held. Most recently, Senator Taft of Ohio when contending for the Republican nomination against Truman. Uh, excuse me, in the in the nominating process, not in the general election. But he You remember that, Yucky, right? <laughs> I do. But, way, way back. But three like different <laughs> three different election cycles culminating in nineteen fifty two Taft was a contender for the Republican nomination with views not as erratic, but similar in substance. And um, it remains a, a strongly held view by many on the American left. And remember, remember, even old Hillary Clinton's come out against most recently, uh, uh, you know, she the, 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 the queasiness about international 
trade agreements and their impact on American workers is is certainly not unique to Donald Trump. I thought we had just tr- wafted into the movie V there, and you were going to go off into Remember, Remember the 5th of November. And, um... You know, I, I, think, I think that I think what really motivated me to write to write my column Was wasn't alcohol. particularly wanting to. No, no, you were do, drinking. <laughs> wanting no. particularly to defend Trump, but rather frustration with the rather vapid response coming from so many in the media. I I actually stumbled across a Media Matters uh, compilation of uh, media reactions to Trump on foreign policy. And um, as far as I could tell, reading through, you know, a a summary of here's what the Washington Post editorial board says, here's what the New York Times editorial board says, et cetera, they were all reading from the exact same script. None of them gave any details. The The dismissal of Trump was so itself devoid of content and so utterly cliche ridden that it could have been made by a fifth grader. You know who had memorized a couple of talking points. Well, wait, U.S. Wait alliances a are very important. Wait and, a and second. I think what, but well, and what's missing? And actually, this is a point that Dan Dresner made in a in a piece uh, he wrote in the Post, um, talking about Jack Lew's recent efforts to defend uh, the Obama administration's economic policies. Is you know what we need, what, what we need, and what we're really not getting, both in response to Trump and in general as a defense to this administration's approach to economic policy, is two things. You know that, that number one is that. You want to persuade Americans that this is the right way to go. We need, we need specificity in terms of examples of how U.S. economic leadership actually translates into tangible benefits for Americans here. And people need to engage with the counterfactuals. You know, that, okay, what is the bad thing that would happen if NATO broke? Okay, what is the bad thing that would happen if Japan developed nuclear weapons? What, and I think those, those, that, uh, those cases can be easily made, that there are real bad things that Trump is not talking about. But nobody's making that case. Well, nobody's bothering to engage on that level. Okay, and, well, I, and I think we need, we need to do it. It's not about Trump fundamentally. It's about, it's about getting the buy-in of a lot of very disaffected, very alienated Americans. Okay. Let's break this down. First of all, to some degree, it is about Trump, right? He is a candidate. People are voting for him or they're not voting for him. The arguments made by the New York Times editorial board and the Washington Post editorial board happen to have the benefit of being correct. The arguments made by Donald Trump happen to have the benefit of being incorrect and ludicrous. And the fact that the Times and the Post are making the same argument doesn't mean that they are following talking points. They may just be sticking to the facts. There are other facts that are being laid out here. Donald Trump has no foreign policy experience. Donald Trump has no foreign policy advisors. Donald Trump said he's his own best foreign policy advisor. He's got advisor. that guy who was in Model UN. Right. Okay. Yeah, he's a seventh <laughs> grader in Queens. Well, he's got, you know, Donald Trump um, is wrong about NATO. He's wrong about nuclear weapons. He's wrong about ISIS. He's wrong about how to handle the Middle East. He's wrong about Mexico. He's wrong about Mexicans. He's wrong about refugees. He's wrong about Islam. He's wrong about virtually everything he talks about with regard to this thing. Why give any credence to what he's saying? Now, a lot of Americans are wrong about some of these issues like trade. And arguments have not been made that not only address the counterfactuals, but also address the irrational fears that people have, that the jobs that they once had no longer exist. And people have got to address those things, and that's an obligation for credible candidates. It is not the place uh, of, of credible voices in the media 
to somehow suggest that lunatics appearing to the luna, appealing to the <laughs> lunatic fringe um, with incoherent policies are somehow actually doing something coherent. You know, Donald Trump is like, you know, the million monkeys sitting in a room at typewriters, one of them getting a coherent sentence every so often by random luck when it comes to correct foreign policy. And I, you know, I just don't understand what the benefit of defending Trump is. I'm not sure it's 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 defending Trump so much as it is trying, as we all are as best we can from our respective podcast studios in East Coast elite cities trying to understand what it is about this guy who is so clownish, so buffoonish, so easy to mock, what it is that resonates and brings 20,000 people to see him speak and wait for him two hours till he lands in his Trump and blatant helicopter and then hits back to his Trump plane. You know, there is something that he's saying that's resonating, whether Yeah, but they do the same thing for Khloe Kardashian and Justin Bieber. People love a show. Can I just say how much I hope they are going to be on a Democratic ticket and not on a Republican ticket? There's not even going to be. By the time Justin Justin Bieber is old enough to run for a serious office, there's not even going to be a Republican (laughs) Party at the rate we're going. You may be right. Go on. Sorry, Yucky. I, I love the voice of the Midwest decrying the extremes of the coast, by the way, when the most regular thing I hear from you is that the Cubs are going to somehow win the World Series, which is more <laughs> ludicrous than anything Trump has said. Oh, as a St. Louis Cardinals you know fan, I hope that's the, true, but you're wrong, David. You're wrong. You know the, be Cubs the parade are leading it? President Trump. Pre- no. President Trump. No, it'll be, it's going to be pre- University of, it's going to be University of Chicago President Obama. Yeah. Touche. But, you know, there's no question people love his show. At the same time, there is something he says and something about him that resonates. You know, I think that that there's a philosophy Trump has that is coherent and that is legitimate and that is true the world over. And it's one that probably all of us find really, really, really distasteful, which is the philosophy of the great man. You know, that you can be a strong man. And if you're Putin, you're Erdogan, you're you're al-Sisi, that pick dictator X from country Y, that there is appeal to that. And I think... He seized on that early, that so long as you exude masculinity and macho-ness and your, you know, your fingers are the right size and other parts are the right <laughs> size, then you know, people will vote for you. They want to hear that. They want to feel tough. How did we go there? First of all, let's hear a word for Indira Gandhi, Queen Victoria, and Queen Elizabeth. Hear, hear. You know, I don't think it requires being masculine or having parts of the right size. I think that throughout history, strong leaders, not men— have managed to have that kind of a following. Um, but secondly, aren't we, aren't, aren't, aren't we then sort of talking up the seeds of fascism? So um, I agree with Yoki that Donald Trump defends Putin, defends the Chinese government cracking down in Tiananmen Square, um, and not for reasons that have to do with great leaders, but but you're right, like there's a fascist undercurrent to this. Um, and there are no women on Donald Trump's list of great leaders. Donald Trump's, what is Donald, his list? What, what list does Donald Trump have? I mean, he's got binders. Know, he's got binders. binders. Full of women. Yeah. Is he, no, I don't think Mitt is going to share his binders with Donald. I don't think they like each other very much. But I, but I think, I mean, I think that what, what our comments uh, Yoki's and Corey's and mine have in common is it's not so much about defending Donald Trump. It's about calling out the the sort of Washington consensus for for sloppiness, for for not being very interested 
in engaging with, as you said, the, the fears and the hopes that ordinary Americans have and not being very interested in trying to make – in trying to actually have to support the policies that we think are best. We, you know, that, that it's very sloppy to just state them and assume that everybody will say, oh, you guys really are the experts. Okay, then. Well, let know, me, and, but but and let I, me flip it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Russ and I think exactly you're absolutely right. right. Is, Donald, is Donald Trump – have undertones of fascism. Donald Trump has overtones of fascism, you know. <laughs> but but if we do not want him in the White House, we have to. We we can't afford to just sit here and go. Oh, 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 oh well, that's just ridiculous. Ha <laughs> ha! Everybody knows that it doesn't work. It actually helps him. Well, wait a second. First of all, you know, stupid is not new. Donald Trump didn't invent stupid. Sarah Palin was there being Al stupid. Al Gore invented the internet and, and stupid. No, Al Gore, he's not a stupid guy. But but Sarah Palin was there and Rick Santorum was there and Pat Robertson was there. In fact, the recent Republican track record of running people with absolutely friggin' insane ideas for president is 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 pretty full. We're going to get to the Democratic slate at some point, don't we? we? Well, sure, if you wish. Um, but we only have a few minutes left here, so we're gonna, we're going to stay focused here. <laughs> but 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 um, the but there's always a future podcast for that if you want. But having said that, um, with regard to um, you know this this kind of not being in touch with the American people and not trying to sort of be attuned with to them, I would argue that some of the things that Trump is doing is actually just playing on the Washington elite's exploitation of those feelings and taking it to the nth degree further. I mean, I wrote a book called something National Insecurity, American Leadership in an Age of Fear or something like that. And the whole point was that for the past 15 years, both parties have been playing off of the fear post 9-11 and pandering to it and using it to achieve their own political ends one way or another, whether it's waging a war, selling arms, or or saying we should stay out of the world because we're afraid of the world. And Trump is merely doing the same thing. He's playing on old strains that have the American elites have been perpetuating for a long time, whether it's isolationism or fear of the other. There's nothing new here with Donald Trump, and it's not unique to him. What's unique to him is that he's a fascist reality show buffoon who has real trouble understanding 51% of the population because I don't think he, you know, uh, you know, has a healthy view of women, and um, uh, he's, you know, you know, got 200 million dollars when he was born and has been using that to buy himself a place at the table throughout his life, despite being wrong at every turn. And, you know, I I just don't understand why giving him credence benefits us in any way. But each of you now has 60 seconds to make again the point that I'm wrong. Start with Corey. <laughs> uh, it matters to win the argument. And there may be a lot of crazy Americans, but one of the great things about being a historian of the 19th century is that I know we are not newly a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians. We have always been a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians. And it matters to win the argument so that so that reckless politicians don't get elected because that takes our country in a dangerous place. So it's not good enough to ignore Trump when this many people are voting for him. We actually have to win the substantive arguments, address people's fears and concerns. Yes. That's your response, Rosa? That's what you mm -hmm. have to add to this is yes. What she said. 
what she said. Okay, yes. Yaki, you now have a minute and 45 seconds. This is fantastic. You just go on and on. And on. I, I, listen, I don't think it's as much about defending Trump. I, I agree that much of what he says is factually wrong. Much of it is bigoted. Much of it is, is fascistic and on and on and on. But I do think there's something we owe ourselves as journalists, but also to people listening to this or reading what we write, to understand why the country hears it, like why, why it resonates. Not so much, is he right? Is he wrong? Is there logic to what he says? Is there not logic to what he says? But why does it make sense to much of the country? And again, much doesn't mean the majority. Much may mean 20 million, 30 million, whatever. But there are tens of millions of people who hear what Trump says and think, yep, agree. And to my mind, that's the question. It's not, is he right? It's, why does that happen? Why do people hear it and decide that they like what he says and that they agree with it? And I feel like where the D.C. elite, you know, to go back to Rose's point, where it falls short is dismissing the fact that there are people who hear what he says and agree with it and need to be told convincingly, you know, David, as you say, that he's wrong. The fact that that case is not being made in a way that convinces the many people who believe Trump, who hear him, who trust him, who like him, that to me is the most interesting part of this entire election. That's true. And I agree 100% with Yucky. The reality is that Trump will disappear, probably in August, with some establishment coup so he doesn't win it. Although, God help us, if Ted Cruz becomes the candidate, we're going to have plenty to talk about there. But, um, you know, Trump will disappear. Those people will not. Those people are alienated by the times in which they live in. They're alienated by growing inequality in the United States. They're alienated by our inability to correlate economic growth with job creation or with uh, wage growth. They're alienated by the fact that Washington is dysfunctional and doesn't seem to be responsive to the people in any way. They're alienated by the fact that, you know, their articles has appeared in the paper recently where you know, the vast majority, half of something of, of all the super PAC money comes from 50 individuals in the United States, which means that just a handful of people have real power. They're alienated for real reasons. But also, I think we have to take into consideration that a lot of these people are badly educated, don't care about the electoral process, voting on the basis of instinct, or perhaps have the wrong kind of motivations. Uh, we're going to have to contend with them for a long time, just like France is going to contend with the National Front and Italy is going to contend with the Northern Alliance and Hungary is going to contend with Viktor Orban and his followers for a long time to come. But, um, I, you know, I think it's right that we need to devote some attention to them and how we're going to deal them, with them and how we're going to ensure that our democratic system is not hijacked by them as it has been during the Republican primary process, which has given far too much voice to a group of people uh, and concerns that don't deserve it. Uh, we've given it enough time here. This ER podcast has come to its close once again, racing through uh, the time allotted to us like something through a goose. Um, uh, wow, I did not need that. You didn't? I'm sorry. Um, well, the colorful language is what keeps all those barred freshmen listening to this. Um, 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 yeah. yeah. Our Donald ba- Trump, you'll rue the day yeah. with David Rothkopf in the ER podcast. Yeah. 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 What she said. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you to Rosa Brooks. Thank you to Corey Shockey. Thank you to Yaki Driesen. Join us again next time for another exciting uh, colorful um, and probably borderline obscene ER. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host. 
The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.